Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. minutes. We're, we're entering into that season. I was trying to explain uh, seasons to someone who's not from Florida. I'm like, there's two seasons. There's the hurricane season that we have like April, May, and then there's the hurricane season we have like September, October. So we're kind of entering into that one, and then in between, it's just hot. Uh, so here we are. Uh, thank you all for being here today. It's, um, it's so encouraging to continually see, even in the midst of like troubled times and when things feel difficult or disorienting, that we still insist on gathering. And I really believe that gathering together like this is an act of resistance. It's an act of resistance against so many things within our culture, within our society, that would demand our time, that would try to pull us away from continuing to make Jesus the center of our lives, which is what we're really focusing on in the series we're in right now. Um, This series is called To the Holy and Faithful, and what we're doing is essentially going through Paul's letter to the Colossians, almost verse by verse, and allowing Paul to lead us in understanding what does it mean to keep Jesus at the center of our lives, the pursuit of our lives, even when everything in society would seek to distract us. And so last week, we kind of looked at his introduction and talked about how, you know, the the core thing where Paul starts, and by extension, what we're all here to do is remind ourselves of who we really are. That's the main role of the church. Your role for one another is to say, no, 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 this is who you really are. You are not what is in your bank account. You are not what you achieve. You are not your relationships. You are not your race or ethnicity or your sexuality or your gender or your socioeconomic status. You are the beloved of God. And uh, yeah, right, that's good news. That's why we call it good news. (laughs) Right, Johnny? And the more that we learn how to receive that and inhabit that, that's what we do in church is we're learning how to inhabit that reality the more we begin to uh, align ourselves uh, in our allegiance to King Jesus. We gather up all these pieces of who we are that have been shattered by the world um, in him, and he begins to, to stitch us back together as whole and healthy human beings. And then from that place, we begin to participate in the work that God has for us. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into the next portion of this scripture, which I absolutely adore. Um, So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, that you are for us. You're not against us. And even if here, Lord, means that we're at home and that we're watching this online, here in the city, um, around our nation, possibly around the world, we still know that here is the only place to be because it's where you are. And that we get to gather together to remind one another of that beauty, of your withness, your forness. And so, Father, I pray as we continue on today that you would really open us up to have a vision of what you are really like because of who we see you to be in King Jesus. 
and that we would latch onto that with everything that we are. That, that would be the, or the single-minded pursuit of our lives is to know you and allow that knowing of you to affect everything else about how we see ourselves, how we see our place in the world, our relationships, how we understand the human story. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all God's people said, Amen. So today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and I'm going to break it up into two portions. What we have here uh, is something called the Christ hymn. Okay, there's, a, there's two of these um, in Scripture, possibly more, but we're going to be looking at this one in Colossians. But this is kind of the main uh, rallying cry that I want for us today, that King Jesus is the beautiful center and climax of God's story. King Jesus is the beautiful center and climax of God's story. Our, our vision for this year has been all our allegiance to King Jesus, kind of reclaiming the centrality of who Jesus really is for us as Christians and, and kind of elevating that. We call it in fancy theological terms, having a high Christology. Because one of the things that I've perceived, and maybe you have as well, is that we have this tendency in our modern culture, and this is, I think this has been true for perhaps 100 years now, but we're really beginning to see the effects of it, is that Jesus has been decentralized in the church, or for faith. And I think one of the things that happened was that people came along and they said, oh, faith, religion, that's how um, men, humanity has made sense of how the world is and then given them some sort of moral compass. So, like, religion's supposed to be useful. So we decide what is true based on whether or not it's useful. And now we have science, and now we have all these other ways of being in the world that are actually more useful than religion. So religion has, has had its day, but we're kind of moving into a post-religious world, a post-religious society, which I think is interesting because I don't think any truly religious people would agree with that, that we claim our faith because we believe that it's true, not simply because it's useful or that it's helpful. And I think that there's a major temptation these days to domesticate who Jesus is in order to sort out our other agendas, our other isms. And y'all know if you've been in this church for five minutes, I'm very wary of any time anybody attaches an adjective to the front. Is it adjective or adverb to Christian? What am I talking about? Like adjectives. Thank you for the teachers there. I, I learned good, okay? I good, goodly got it. Anytime that we say, oh, I'm a progressive Christian, conservative Christian, American Christian, mystic Christian, whatever it is, like we, we're, we're, very, we're, we're very into labels right now, which I think is very ironic in our modern culture that there's, like, there's such a drive to like, destroy labels, but only to grasp onto new ones. And I think that actually speaks to the human need to be defined. You know, we have this idea that we think that freedom means once I break out of all of these definitions, then I'm truly free. But what we see happen so often is we break down some of those. And some of them, let's be honest, need to be broken down because they're not helpful. But we just all of a sudden start latching onto new definitions, new borders and boundaries and words because we think that that's what keeps us safe, that's what helps to define us, that's what gives us a sense of purpose, whatever it might be. But too often what happens within the Christian household is that we take Jesus and we use him to justify whatever the thing was that we put before Christian. Because that might actually be the center 
of our identity, and Christian is the auxiliary bit. Christian becomes the adjective. I was talking to my friend Landon last night, so we were listening to like DC Talk and Newsboys, as you do on a Saturday night in 2021, and I think it's so funny. Yeah, we started with Jesus Freak, but we went, we went other places with it. We got some deep cuts in there. Um, went POD, satellite. Anyone? No big deal. Follow me on Spotify for all the latest hits. Um, I worked in a record store for a while, and it was always funny that, like, when you're working with genre, you know, it's like there's classical, and there's heavy metal, and there's pop punk, and Christian. Like, Christian is a genre, which is super weird, because it doesn't, what does Christian sound like? Now, the beauty was, I think DC Talk actually got away with it, because they were genre bending in a time that genre bending wasn't necessarily a thing, but, you know, y'all know this if you grew up in the 90s. Um, But so often, what happens is Jesus becomes co-opted and domesticated for our own political agendas or our justice agendas or our whatever agendas that we have. And before long, he slowly slips out of the center of our faith. It actually becomes about something else. It becomes about us. It becomes about what we want and us trying to make heaven on earth And the problem with this is, if we don't know who Jesus truly is, we don't know who we truly are. That's the Christian narrative, is that we have been rescued into God's story through who Jesus is, and that has given us the ability to latch onto our true nature as the beloved of God. And we also don't know what we're here to do if we don't understand who Jesus truly is. And one of my heroes of the faith, Brian Zond, he's a pastor up in Missouri, he talks a lot about this mon- the relatively modern uh, labeling that we call deconstruction. And this is not a new phenomenon, this is, this is what we're calling it right now in this point in journey. And he said, what if we move away from that language, which isn't really many oftentimes being used properly, um, where we're just kind of disassembling things, we're breaking down identities and structures and boundaries and so on and so forth, um, what if it's actually about restoration? What if, what if what's happening right now, and I believe, I believe we're in another capital R, Reformation. I believe that something happens in the church every half-life. So in the 1000 AD, there was a major Reformation. In the kind of 1600s, there was a major Reformation. The 1750s and right now in the 2000s, we're in a huge Reformation. And we're, people are going to write about it in like 100 years if Christianity still exists then, we, which I hope it will. Um, But I think what's happening right now for those who are careful is that we're seeing a a restoration. It's almost like, imagine like a painting where someone is carefully scraping away all of the dirt and the oil and the dust that's gathered up over years that's obscured the true image. The image has always been there, but we couldn't always see it. And I think now the real task of the church is how do we reclaim and restore the image of Jesus as he truly is? That many of us, we have a distaste in our mouths for conventional religion because the previous generation propped up a Jesus according to their agendas and they domesticated him and they put him on bumper stickers and and they used him to prop up their agendas. But it's so easy for us to do the exact same thing, okay? And this is what we see, a constant pendulum swing between conservatism and progressivism. This is not new. And each part claims that they've got the right view of Jesus, but they just end up doing the same thing over and over and over again. We see this in the story of Jesus with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the conservatives and the liberals of his day. And they all said, no, 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 we know what God wants. We know what God's all about. And the other side, they're the ones that are kidding themselves. And Jesus keeps 
gathering them up into who he is. He says, transcend this whole silly binary. Leave it all behind. Trust in me. And so the task, what I want us to do today, is to restore our vision of who Jesus truly is as best we can. And so that's going to bring us to um, our passage today, which I think is probably the central portion of Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's what we call a Christ hymn. We don't know if Paul wrote this hymn um, or if this was something that was in circulation in the early church, but Paul kind of places it here as the place from which all the rest of his letter is going to radiate. And remember as I'm reading this that this early church, just like us, they're being distracted by the surrounding pagan cultures and philosophies. They're getting caught up in Hellenistic philosophy that's giving them these new curious answers for how the world works. They're really latching on to Jewish legalistic religion that seems to be this auxiliary to following Jesus. So it's Jesus plus this thing, and that makes a more healthy, happier whole life. And so what Paul's doing is he's reasserting what it is that we believe about the nature and the centrality of Christ. And I love that Paul decides to do it in poetry, because what he's telling us here is that truth must be beautiful. Because sometimes there's things that you just can't, you know, write out matter-of-factly. Sometimes in order to claim truth, we need to be moved. And so Paul adds in this beautiful poem. This is Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and this is the New Testament for everyone version. Um, N.T. Wright's translation, because if N.T. Wright says it, I believe it, that settles it. And um, I love the way he's arranged it so it reads a bit more like a poem. And I want you to be listening for the repetition and and trying to get into where this, this brilliant piece of work is taking us. He is the image of God, the invisible one the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created in the heavens and here on earth. Things we can see and things we cannot, thrones and lordships and rulers and powers, all things were created both through him and for him. And he is ahead prior to all else and in him all things hold together and he himself is supreme, the head over the body of the church. He's the start of it all. Firstborn from the realms of the dead, so that in all things he might be the chief. For in him all the fullness was glad to dwell, and through him to reconcile all to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, yes, things on earth and also the things in the heavens. Amen. The primary thing that Paul is doing here is he's playing with this Hebrew word for head. And he's using a lot of different examples. Now, when I say head, you automatically, you have an image of what I mean by head. Maybe it's the, the head of the body and what our heads do for the rest of our body. Maybe it's the, the head of an organization. Maybe it's the person who goes ahead. We, we use this word in a lot of different ways. In English, they did the same thing in Hebrew. And, he, and what Paul's really doing with that, he's, he's playing with the idea of head, and he's playing with this idea of logos, which means word, or Sophia, which means wisdom. And he's kind of weaving all of these together into this really ingenious uh, poem. And so what we find uh, in that first line, he's speaking of Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. What does he mean by that? He means that Jesus was literally, um, it, you know, it begotten of the Father is what we say. Like Jesus has kind of goes before the Father, proceeds from the Father. But what he means by firstborn is like the mirror image of God. How many of you are a firstborn? Any of you? 
couple of you, oh, decent amount of you. It'd be very interesting to research and see why that is. Like, why are we the ones that are here right now? But um, if you're the firstborn, like, you are, you are the image of your parents. You know, their genes came together and they formed you, and this is who you are. And so that's what they're saying. First of all, Paul is saying that Jesus is the mirror image of God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. And conversely, if you can't say it about Jesus, you cannot say it about God. Because Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus isn't an aspect of who God is. Jesus isn't an angle of God or a version of God. Jesus is God incarnate. We see this testified to throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer says, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus is the, is the image of God and the radiance of God's glory. We see elsewhere in the other Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is saying to us, Although he was equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. And so time and again, the first Christians are testifying, no, no, Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is co-equal with God. And I think even there, one of the things that we so often see in our society is that Jesus gets reduced. You know, Jesus was a great teacher. You know, Jesus was you know, a really powerful revolutionary. And those things are true. But it's so easy for us to rob Jesus of his divinity because that doesn't make sense to us and it makes us uncomfortable. And I think it's even interesting when people say, oh no, like Jesus, you know, Jesus came to live a wonderful life uh, and teach us how to live wonderful lives and he died. And then his followers felt so bad about that that they had to actually make up this story and deify him after his death. But that's not really what was happening. But there's no evidence for that. Like, There's no extra scriptural evidence for Jesus just being a really great teacher. The scriptures, Jesus himself testifies that he is God incarnate. All of his earliest followers testify that he is God incarnate. And this is really, really important. I think what's happening is sometimes we're so uncomfortable with the idea of God that we don't want to taint, taint Jesus with being like God because God is kind of like the angry, drunk stepfather in the sky who's coming to beat us up. This is true. This is what a lot of us grew up with. And how could Jesus be like that? Jesus is great, but God, I don't know. I don't know about him. But if we really allow this, we say what we recognize, the truest thing that we can say about Jesus is the truest thing that we can say about God, that this is a God of self-giving love. This is a God who breaks himself open for his own creation, who makes himself nothing in order to be in relationship and to redeem all of creation. You see, when we allow the reality of Jesus being God incarnate, it changes the trajectory of what we mean when we say God. The next thing that we find in this poem that Paul says is he is supreme or he is ahead or he is before or he is in. And this means um, that all things are subjected to him. You see, another one of these lies that we've believed about faith and religion from sociologists and others is, well, they're, they're just different ways of just trying to figure out what this thing is. And each of us have our own way of doing it. And you've got to find the thing that works best for you. But what the, the bold claim of this hymn is, no, 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 all of it is gathered up in Jesus as what God is truly like. 
And I think this is really important to recognize that what Paul is saying, what the earliest Christians believed is Jesus is the one holding together all of creation. In Greek philosophy, there was this idea of the logos. They meant the word. And and the Greeks had this really beautiful idea that there's kind of this logos, this word. It's kind of like the animating force of the universe. And it holds everything together, atom to atom. And the early Christians came along and went, yeah, you actually got it. That's right. You see, the early Christians blessed something that they found in Greek philosophy, and they said, there is a word, and that word is the word of God, and we know him as the face of Jesus. This logos, this animating force of the cosmos that holds it all together. And see, many of us grew up with an idea of an interventionist God. What do I mean by that? It means time and space are kind of ambling along. You're just kind of doing your thing, twiddling your thumbs, and then you went to like a Saturday night worship thing, and then all of a sudden, God showed up. And wasn't that great when God showed up? Because in our, in our pagan heritage, the gods were like way the heck over there. They lived up on mountains or they were in the clouds. They weren't particularly bothered. You kind of had to do the rain dance and then they'd pay attention. They'd be like, oh, fine, Heather, I'll do the thing for you. And then they'd come and they'd do the thing. And then they'd go back to their own lives. And so many of us, we think of it like that. Like God every once in a while makes a cameo in the human story. And that's not the Christian narrative. It's to say, no, 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 God has been present. God is the most consistent present thing. Time and space keep moving and shifting, but the logos, the word of God, God spoke and it holds creation together. Did you realize if Jesus didn't exist, every atom in your body would just fly apart? What? There's no such thing as an interventionist God. That's why I love that moment in, um, in the Old Testament where, um, oh gosh, it's Isaac. Um, wakes up, no, sorry, it's Jacob. Jacob had, like, falls asleep and he has this dream and there's this ladder going up into heaven and the angels are coming up and down and he sees the throne room of God and he wakes up and he goes, surely God was in this place this whole time and I wasn't aware of it. And that's all of us. That's what life is. Life is just waking up to the constant reality of the God revealed in Jesus being all around us. And were it not for the word of God, the wisdom of God, the Sophia of God, knitting all of this together, preserving all that is good and redeeming all that is corrupted, there would be no existence. We have to expunge this idea of the interventionist God who makes a cameo every once in a while in history and reclaim the fact that he is the very fabric of creation. Paul continues on, he says, he himself is supreme, the head over the body, the church. What does this mean? It doesn't just mean, you know, people say, oh, Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He wanted a relationship. Yeah, okay, whatever. Um, that's not interesting to me anymore. I think it was when I was like 20, you know, and we were like all punk rock and like going to these Christian festivals and we're like, oh yeah, we're going to do this, like let's tear down religion. Not interested anymore at 37. I got gray in my beard, you know, like we're going to do this thing. What it means that he's the head of the body of the church is he's talking about like your head and your body, kind of using that relationship. And what he's saying here basically is that Jesus is the blueprint for a genuine humanity. Because the church is not an institution of like, this isn't a social club where we come together because we have common interests and we get to do those things together and we play cards together and then we go home. No, like the church is those of us who have been gathered up in Christ Jesus. We have been rescued into him. We have become his body. We are woven together as his body. As he holds together all the atoms in the cosmos, he holds together us as his body. And he becomes the blueprint for who we are to become if we continue in the faith. 
So we look to Jesus not only to see what God is truly like, we look to Jesus to see what we are becoming. And the beauty of Jesus is that Jesus is so big and so wonderful that all of us find the truth of who we are becoming in that, not in a sense of uniformity, but in unity. Because as diverse as the people are in this room, so is the personality of Christ. And so the church, as we are reminding one another of who we really are, we are entering into what it means to be truly, holy, completely human. And then we find the last piece, that he is the fullness of God. Again, that Jesus isn't an aspect of God, an angle to God, like a sneak peek of what God is, that eventually you're going to get the whole thing. No, he is, God was pleased to have the fullness dwell in him. And Paul's probably using this Old Testament, Old Covenant language of Shekinah, which means glory. And y'all Pentecostals knew that before I even said it. And it, what it was, it was like the, the manifest presence of God that would fill the temple. You know, there would, there would be these amazing moments, like where the Shekinah glory kind of hovers over the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. But then there would be these moments when God would fill the temple. To, so people go, oh, there he is. And so Jesus is the fullness of God. He is the manifest presence of God himself. And so do we see Jesus in the terms that the first Christians did? Or have we believed in some of these isms, some of these adjectives that we add on to Christian for so long that it's left a sour taste in our mouths of what Jesus is supposed to be like, and then we've just rushed to another ism, We've rushed to another program. We've, we've rushed to, you know, uh, another little minor movement within the church that always seems like God is kind of counteracting. This isn't God's first rodeo. He's kept the church together for 2,000 years. I think he knows what he's doing. But can we restore the vision that we have of Jesus? Have we allowed Jesus to be made small by the surrounding culture? Because they would prefer to have him be an inspiring teacher. They prefer to have him be some radical revolutionary 2,000 years ago. They prefer to have him be someone who kind of gives us these little one-liners that make our day a little less miserable than the day before because they don't know what to do with this Jesus, this, this story, this hymn. And I think what's so powerful about especially this being a poem, do we find this vision beautiful? Does this picture of Jesus excites something within us because it speaks to the deepest part of what it means to be me, to be tied into the larger human story, to be part of this creation being held together by the logos of God. So what I want to do is we're just going to take 30 seconds, and, and we didn't talk about this, so my apologies in the back, but uh, I just really felt like this would be important. I want to give you 30 seconds. Let's just turn, turn all the lights down. Give me a, give me a blackout. And those of you who are online, you can kind of um, just close your eyes, too. And everyone here, close your eyes. And when I say, I'm just going to give you 30 seconds. When I say, Jesus, what do you see? Like, what does he look like to you? And I just want you to begin to ask questions. Why does he look that way? Without judging your image of Jesus, without decrying it, just what does he look like to you? And begin to ask those questions. And if you had to give that vision of Jesus a title, what would it be? Let's just take 30 seconds. Come Holy Spirit. Would you reveal to each one of us what is the truest picture of Jesus that we have in our own hearts?
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Who is he to you? What does he look like? And I want you to, <clears throat> I want you to own that because that's where you're at right now. But I don't want you to settle for that. Because we have to believe that Jesus is more than anything that we could think of or ask for or imagine. Because as soon as we feel like we have a grasp on who Jesus is, that's where we've co-opted him for our own agendas. And so bless who Jesus is for you today, but also have the courage and the tenacity to ask him to, to reveal himself to you more to show you things about the depths of who he truly is, the width of who he truly is, the length of who he truly is, that it becomes that single-minded pursuit of your lives. And so Paul continues then that he takes this big claim of the Christ hymn and he begins to show, it how, show us how it relates to our story. When we go, okay, yes, that's beautiful, Paul. Love that poem. Love that song. Let's put it to some lyrics. Let's, let's you know, pump, the, pump up the jams. So what? And this is where he continues on. This is Colossians 1, 21 to 23. And I, I'm going to read this as if I'm reading it to you because this is you, okay? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Oh, whoops. That's uncomfortable. But... Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So I want to kind of briefly touch on a few of those key phrases there. Now, the first is, once you were alienated from God, what he's speaking to is the Gentiles. Remember, these early churches are kind of this mixed bag of like Jews that recognized that Jesus was the Messiah that was prophesied in the scriptures. And there were a lot of Gentile converts, pagans. There was, there was Greeks and Romans and Celts and all sorts of people, like our people mostly, if we're honest. It's us that they're talking about. Our people, all of a sudden we're so taken by this this vision of Jesus. We didn't really get it. We didn't have the Holy Scriptures. We didn't have, you know, the knowledge that the Jewish people did, but we, we got into it, and all of a sudden we start clashing because we're bringing with us all of our dirty laundry. We're bringing with us all of our assumptions about how the world works and what we think God is really like, and we're trying to work this thing out, and it's very t- uncomfortable. Can I get an amen if it's uncomfortable to be part of the church, Right? It's like, oh, it's, it's weird and it's slimy. I don't really know. Like, what's going on? Like, that's what's happening. And he's reminding us, especially those of us who have of our Gentile heritage, that we were outside of the workings of God in Israel. Is God, what God, God chose a people for himself. He, he called them holy, which it doesn't mean that they're better than everybody else. It just means I've got a job for you to do. Holiness is about your vocation. It's not about your identity, okay? Do not take holiness as your identity. It's about the job that God has for you to do. And he says, I'm going to rescue the world through this people. And in this people, there's a bloodline. And in that bloodline, there's going to come one who can save the world. And what he's saying now is all of you, you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. What does he mean? He's like, the way in which you were thinking made you an enemy of God because you didn't know who God was because of what you thought about yourself, because of what you thought about the world around you, because of what you thought God was like. 
You had all of these assumptions. You were shaped by your culture. You were shaped by your worldview. But now you've been brought close because what you worship shapes how you think. We do not give ourselves enough credit as human beings for the power we have to shape our own thinking. That this, this is not static, okay? And what you worship shapes the way you think. If you worship money, it will shape you. If you worship success, it will shape you. If you worship relationships, they will shape you. Because you think about something so long, it's releasing dopamine into your body and you, be, you become chemically dependent on the feelings that you have whenever you're thinking about something. And so what we see then is worship is actually the discipline of changing the way that we think. And maybe it isn't the pagan gods of the past, but the, I think many of those pagan gods, if we're honest, are alive and well today. I think Ares is alive and well today. Look at the military-industrial complex. I think Mammon is alive and well today. Look at our predatory economy and how we take advantage of the poor in order to make ourselves richer. I think Aphrodite is alive and well today, the goddess of eroticism and objectifying people for sexual pleasure. We all worship something or someone. Maybe we don't know the name, maybe we don't know the shape, but there's something that guides our inner workings. And that's what makes us enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. And he says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. I love the word reconciliation. It literally means to be made friends again. So he's saying, you have been made friends with God because of what Christ has done in his physical body. And what is that? It's that Jesus took into his physical body all of our sin and he put it to death. All of the systems of mankind, all of our corruption, all of our rebellion, we kind of projected all of that onto Jesus, and, and, and sin did its worst. And instead of God coming in with an even bigger stick and beating us up into submission, he actually submitted to that. He absorbed all of that into his body, and then when he was buried, he kind of, like, that was it. Like sin was, was killed off. And then he was resurrected on the third day to prove that he was who God said that he was going to be. And our primary sins were that idea of breaking from God, of taking matters into our own hands, of trying to craft our own reality, trying to craft our own identities. Those are the kinds of sins that we've been set free from and we've been made friends with God again because Jesus came to reveal what God is really like and then Jesus came to give us the pathway to enter back into relationship with him. But I think this is the verse that really, really captured my imagination this week. So he says, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That if should really make some of us jump up. Because one of the things that we often talk about in the church is to say, well, once saved, always saved. And usually what it is is like at some point, usually between 7 and 15, you pray the sinner's prayer. Uh, you ask Jesus into your heart. You have, now have this status. You twiddle your thumbs for the next 70 years until you die, and then you get to go to heaven. And there's not a whole lot of information about what you're supposed to do at the bit in between. 
And what that's led some of us to believe is, like, my faith is some sort of status that I've achieved. I've, I've said the prayer. I've, I've done the thing that kind of gets me the one-way ticket to heaven when I die. Uh, and that's it. Or maybe it was your baptism. Well, I was baptized, so I'm in. I'm good. But what Paul's saying here is all of this is available to you if you continue in your faith. Because faith is not a one-time status that you have achieved. Faith is a garden that you need to cultivate, that you need to get your fingers dirty, that you need to get in, you need to listen to the soil. You need to make sure it's getting watered enough. You need to just make sure it's getting sunlight. You need to prune when it's pruning season. You need to cover it over when it's frost season. You have to cultivate your faith. And this isn't about you saving yourself. It's about entering into this divine dance with the Holy Spirit of continuing this journey of working together, that God is doing something and, and, and I'm doing something. I was telling somebody this week, I love whenever we find these kind of paradoxes in especially the writings of Paul when he says, now that I know God, or rather am known by God, or he goes, uh, you know, I did this thing, or it wasn't me, but it was God, it was, you know, the Spirit working through me. And he loves to kind of keep us in this tension. We go, well, who's doing the work? Is it God? Is it me? Like, who's saving? Who's doing the action? And he goes, yep. It's the whole thing. We call it mystery. It's weird. We don't understand it. We're trying to find language for it as best we can. But it's this ongoing cultivation, this, rela- this ongoing dynamic relationship that we have with the God that's revealed in Jesus. So when we pledge allegiance to him, we're saying, I'm trying to bring in every part of who I am, my mind, my heart, my body, my spirit, all of that is being gathered up in, in active allegiance to King Jesus. It's not a static reality. It's a dynamic lifestyle. And I want to say, brothers and sisters, please do not take this for granted. Do not take your faith for granted. Do not take your status as the children of God who have an inheritance in the kingdom. Do not take that for granted and think that everything's just going to be fine because once upon a time you got baptized or once upon a time you said a prayer. Put it into human terms. Can you imagine having a friendship like that? Can you imagine having a a marriage? Well, what do you want? Ten years ago, like, I, I made these vows, and now all of a sudden you want to have a conversation, you know? All of a sudden you want me to take you on a vacation. What is that, you know? We have to change our understandings of faith. This is dynamic. It's lived into. It's cultivated. It's something that we have to get into. We have to get our hands dirty. We need that vision of who it is that we're becoming so that today we have the courage to stay established and firm. And I love that Paul finishes out, this is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. So Paul's kind of making a call back to that Christ hymn, that it's all of these things, the last line, things on earth and also things in the heaven. Because the gospel is not just for you. And it's not even just for us. It's not even just for humanity. Like, it's good news for the whole thing. If it's true that Jesus is the word of God, the logos of God, the animating force that holds every atom together, then it's true that the work of Jesus is even now, he is protecting all that is good. He is promoting and preserving all that is good. And he is redeeming all that is corrupt in creation. So, like even in the midst of this pandemic with this, with, this, with this coronavirus, we have to be thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? 
What are you doing right now? How are you working this out of your creation? I trust that you're here and that you're present in it. And I trust that you're working, like, even, um, you know, in the doctors who are developing these vaccines, like, you're present in that. That's you doing this thing. You're not making a cameo and showing up every once in a while. All of a sudden, Dr. Fauci wakes up in the night, and he's like, aha, there it is. No, like, you're in it. You've been in it this whole time. You're, you're preserving all that is good, and you're redeeming all that is corrupted. And so this good news is good news for all of creation. And we find ourselves in that. And so to truly know Jesus, to claim him as your king is to leave behind everything else that would claim you. Leaving behind everything else. And it's a decision that you make. It's a decision that you make every day to kind of, you decide not to decide in a way. You know, one time a friend of mine who's not a believer asked me, like, why do you believe? And I said, because I have been given over to it. Now, my story is unique. You know, I was born into the Christian household. I was baptized as a baby. Like, I grew up in the church. There was never a moment where, you know, I had to choose. Like, I did the, the forensic analysis. I decided, yes, I agree with this story and that I'm in. I know, don't know a time that I didn't know God. Even though I bump against that every day, I'm always bumping against that call to allegiance and wanting to chase lesser gods smaller identities for myself, easier purposes than what God has called me to. But I think in a way that's all of our stories, isn't it? In some way, it's not necessarily as simple as we just made a decision to get in and we're just going to make a decision to get out. But no, we have been swept up in something. We have been given over to something that is beyond what we can ask or think or imagine. But in that, as we continue to stay in it, to allow ourselves to be washed over with the good news, the reality of King Jesus, it's doing something to us. Because we have to believe that the Jesus story is big enough to hold all of creation, to hold all of our narratives. The Jesus story is big enough to touch all of your pain and your disappointments. It's big enough to redeem your mistakes to bring healing, those things that were intended for your death can now bring you life. It's big enough to redeem all of our ecological disasters. The Jesus story is big enough to, to put us in a place to understand what true equality among humanity looks like. The Jesus story is actually big enough to hold all of that. We don't need to add on to it all of these isms that fill in the gaps. There are no gaps when it comes to Jesus. There are no gaps when it comes to the cosmic Christ. And the beauty of what Paul is telling us in this last little passage is now you get located in God's story. You're making a cameo in his time and space and history. And as you find yourself that, that you are now geolocated in that, that is going to begin to tell you who you truly are. And what is that? Is we become more like him. The more that we see him as he truly is, the more we become like him. This is the great mystery of transformation. Over a hundred years ago, the writer George MacDonald, he was a Scottish writer. Um, he was a minister. Um, he wrote uh, The Princess and... No, not The... Um, oh, gosh. The Princess and the Frog. He wrote a lot of wonderful fairy tales, and he was a huge influence on like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and whatnot. And he wrote this. He said... The pure in heart shall see God. The seeing of him will be the sign that we are like him. 
For only by being like him can we see him as he is. But when we shall be fit to look him in the face, God only knows. That is the heart of my hopes by day and my dreams by night. To behold the face of Jesus seems to me the one thing to be desired. What does that do for you? What does that do for you? To be pure in heart, to say, I want to know Jesus. I don't want to find something in Jesus that backs up all of my agendas, all of my isms. I want to know him. That's what it means to be pure in heart. And to go, I don't even fully understand it. None of us do. But I want the pursuit of my life to behold the face of Jesus to be the one thing to be desired. So last week, as soon as I finished preaching, I, got, I walked out the door, I got in my car, I drove to Jacksonville to be at the funeral for my spiritual father, Dandridge Green. Many of you know he passed um, very unexpectedly the week prior. He was 66. He was in good health, totally strange. The family was absolutely caught off guard. There were all these kind of wild sort of divine providential things that happened around that. Like they moved to Jacksonville two and a half years ago. He had this long list of like projects on their house. He literally finished the last project on the house on the Wednesday and he died of a heart attack on the Thursday. There's all these little strange moments. It's almost like, I don't know if Dan knew, but I knew this. I think Dan's spirit knew what was about to happen. It's a mystery. We don't, we don't know how to explain it. And talking to the family and hearing all of these stories about, like, Dan's last few moments and what were going on, and then being at this funeral and, 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 and uh, you know, talking to so many people over the past couple of weeks who have been profoundly affected by who he was. And the things that we keep coming back to is that he terrified so many of us with his just single-minded pursuit of Jesus. I, I didn't... When I got the news, I didn't know how to feel, and I was kind of working through that. I had conversations with people, and I was just dealing with some of my own stuff and feeling kind of closed off and overwhelmed by all of these cultural narratives and all of this stuff that's happening in the church and all of these fights and bickering that we're having. And then to find out, like, Dan is no longer with us, I didn't know how to feel. And it wasn't until I got on the phone with his daughter and son-in-law, like, a couple of days later, and we were talking about it. And I realized the thing that broke me was it, it wasn't... It wasn't the loss of the time that I have with him. It wasn't that I, I didn't get to say all these things and there was like unresolved stuff between us. It wasn't any of that. It was I have never in my life met somebody who was so desperate to see Jesus face to face. Never in my life. It terrified all of us. It terrified us. And we were so taken by that. And I realized he got what he wanted. He got what he wanted. He gets to see Jesus face to face. For now, you and I, we see as in a mirror dimly lit. But Dan gets to see Jesus face to face. And do you know what it's like to be in the presence of somebody who is so hungry to know Jesus that all of our isms and our bickering and the, the borders and the lines in the sand that we want to draw just don't really seem that important anymore? That we stop kind of trying to locate ourselves in all of these tribes and we begin to recognize that we've been located in Jesus' story. And that's, that's his legacy. Dan told me years ago, because he's helped me so much in my own healing journey of working through a lot of my brokenness and the abuse that I've experienced and one on. He said, you know, Ryan, in a strange way, I hope that I never stop healing. 
I see a lot of us, when we're at the beginning of our healing journey, we think, oh, again? We have to do this again? But Dan had gotten to the point where he looked forward to it because it was intimacy with Jesus. And he said, I, ne- you know, I, I never want to stop healing because I feel like when I stop healing, that's the moment that I'm going to die. And I think that that's what happened because he was too young, didn't make any sense. I, and this, I know this is a bold claim, but I think Dan found all the healing that there was on this side of the grave and it was time for him to go home because he was so open, he was so hungry for Jesus. He, he, he wanted everything that he was to be about that single-minded pursuit. To behold the face of Jesus seems to me the one thing to be desired. So I want you to stand with me. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna worship and we're gonna give the Holy Spirit permission to do something in this space. to to call us back to the centrality, the central truth of what it means to be Christian, which is to know, to seek, to find Jesus. And I want to empower some of you. Some of you, you have like this burning in your hands right now because you're like itching to do something with it. I want you to ask the people around you for prayer or I want you to ask if you can pray for somebody because that's one of the ways in which we're going to continue to come back and find ourselves in the Jesus story. So I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, I want you to begin to minister to one another, whether to ask for prayer or to insist on praying for the person next to you. And we're going to see what the Lord has to do. So Father, we thank you for the vision in this Christ hymn of what Jesus is truly like. Not that any of us understand it, but that it moves us. It it shakes us and shifts us. And it calls into question some of these assumptions that we've made about what you're truly like. Because it fits our narratives, it fits our agendas a little bit easier. Lord, we're sorry that we do that, that we constantly make little idols out of you. Would you call us back now to bear witness to the beauty that we see in King Jesus? That we would be so taken with you, that we'd be so moved by who you are, that we want nothing else in this life. And Holy Spirit, I pray that even now, as you descend upon your dear ones that are present here, that those who need prayer would ask, that those who feel an overwhelming desire to pray would offer it, that we wouldn't just let another moment sweep by where we're taking off the boxes of being Christians, but we're actually living it out. We're cultivating this faith. We're helping one another to stand established and firm, to remind one another of who we truly are in you because of who you truly are to us. And so Holy Spirit, we give you permission to move in this space however you see fit. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.